We should not have a sermon. We should just have singing. That was one of those I don't want an amen on, right? If you didn't get to be here for the class, I'm sorry because uh, we spoke in tongues, we danced, uh, it seems like there was one other thing, and so just go back and tell your Grace Point friends what all we did. Uh, would you please do that, other churches? But anyway, I, I'm grateful. As, as you were singing some of the songs this morning uh, that were English, I was singing with you, and Melissa slapped me on the hand and said, let them do it, honey, let them do it. Uh, one of these days, one of these days, I'm going to be in a chorus like that, and it's going to be in heaven, but I'll, I'll wait, but that's going to be a day when, when she'll hit me in the hand and say, sing on, baby, sing on, because you sound good this time. Uh, we have several visitors in our midst. We're grateful for your presence. There's people from Houston who come here. They're here to see their kids at, at, at uh, Harding and, and just came on up to be with us. We're grateful that you're here, and stay for the meal with the chorus if you would. We'd love to give you some extra time with your kids while you're here. There's a couple from China I met back there, so they get the long-distance prize for sure. I just asked them if our Chinese food is real, and they said, no, no, it's nothing. That's, that's not real. We have some folks, Jill Pritchett back there on the back from, with, with Leslie back there, McMillan, is uh, someone who's from Kennett and taught our, both our kids second grade, one of the best teachers ever, and we just love her dearly and grateful that she made uh, over here. Got to see Noah. Uh, see, I, I tried to see Noah. Noah's so short, I could hardly see him. Uh, but I kept looking, and every once in a while I'd get a glimpse, and I just couldn't take my eyes off of him. It was a great experience. We have some others with us, Leon and Susan Jackson, with their son Nate, and also their daughter Heather and her husband Noble, and, uh, and their granddaughter, also Savannah. If you ever have a problem with a vehicle and you're in Kennett, you go by and see him. He'll fix your car up. He did that for Paul one time. And, and just grateful that they got to be here and, and to see Noah there and, and to be here with us. Be in Daniel chapter 3, if you would. Daniel chapter 3. <clears throat> Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. Little ones to him belong. They are weak, but he is strong. Yes, Jesus loves me. Yes, Jesus loves me. Yes, Jesus loves me. Loves me so. I have to say to Matt publicly, thank you very much for your great singing especially when it gets changed on you at the last minute. Daniel chapter 3, there's not going to be any slides. I just want you to be at this place where we'll look at a couple verses together uh, that are significant. One of the unique things about the Christian faith that I appreciate and that is so powerful in comparison to the uh, sources of authority in other religions is that when God chose to communicate to us and reveal to us what should guide our lives, he did it through the context of a story of a narrative. If you ever read like the Quran, it's just a bunch of disconnected instructions and things. Our source of authority is this wonderful story weaved throughout the history of from the beginning to, to the, the time that it ends as far as the revelation is concerned. And it's this great impactful story full of many people and many circumstances that we got to see our forebears spiritually endure. And these stories really happened on the stage of history. These are events that took place and accounts that are recorded for us. 
and they're a blessing to us, we can go to those stories and we can find ourselves inspired and encouraged and instructed and edified in the ways that we should go. If, if you're ever at a, at, a, at a time in your life when you're like, I know what the right thing to do is, but I just don't know that I can do it, and I don't know that I'll, I'll get out of this very well, you draw upon your David and Goliath story. You ever have a season where it demands of you perseverance? You've got to hang in and do the right thing even though you're not rewarded and you're discouraged and you don't know if you can hang on or not. That's what you got Joseph for. And then you've got things where you make mistakes and you flub up and you think you're a total failure and you're like, man, I might as well quit. No, you can call upon David. You can learn how to repent and what it means to turn your life around. That's a beautiful thing about Scripture that not every, not every religion in the world has anything like that. And if you have to put up with frustrating people, you can call upon your inner Moses too, right? There's one story that, that's about our people. These are our people that we're talking about when we read these stories. These are not far-off, distant people that we have no connection with. They're our peeps, right? They're our people. And, and one of the things about it is these stories come, come to you at different times, and they're times when you need them. And those stories become something that means something to, to you at different times. There's this one story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Amendigo that's the me I want to be. I'm not there yet, but I'm striving to be, and I want to be like these guys. And I want to tell you this story so that you can kind of draw from it. Yeah, I want to be like that too. I, I want to experience that too. So you have Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in chapter 3 of Daniel. And you know how the story goes. Nebuchadnezzar builds this huge gaudy statue, 90 foot high and 9 feet wide, and he thinks it looks like him. He he's got this glorified image of himself. He's very full of himself, thinks he's the most powerful man in the world. And he says, here's what I want you guys to do, that when you, well, no matter what you're doing in the day, when you hear me cue the band to play, when the band starts playing, I want you to bow down to this image. And everybody's like, oh, you know, because you could be in the middle of a day typing a letter and suddenly here goes the band and you've got to stop everything and bow down. But really, to most people, it doesn't matter. They're polytheistic in his, in his kingdom. And so what's one more God to the buffet of choices? It's okay, so it doesn't matter. It doesn't cause them any consternation at all. They just bow down to this other God and they do what the king wants to do. But, but Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are monotheistic. They serve one God. To bow down to any other is against at least commandment number two and probably commandment number one. They know they cannot do this. They don't have a smorgasbord of gods they can add to. They have one God and they give total allegiance to Him. And so when the band plays and everybody starts laying down like that, they're in a sea of people who are bowing down to this image. They have to stay standing. They can't do it. It would violate their conscience. It compromised their beliefs. And so there they are all the time. The band plays, here's everybody bowing, and these three guys stand there awkwardly. I have no idea how many times they did this. I'll bet you they did it for a week or two before anybody made any deal of it. They just stand, you bow, and when the time's over, they just go on with life. And they didn't go to Fox News, and they didn't boycott, and they didn't go on the Facebook and post about it, and they didn't try to get some politician to stand for them. They just stood. I don't have to explain to people, I don't have to make a cause out of this. I don't have to do anything. Just stand while everybody's bowing. I wish we could get this, church, that we have beliefs that we have to stand for. And when everybody else is bowing to something else, we just stand. We don't make a fuss. We don't point fingers. We don't name call. We don't give some long post on Facebook. We just stand. That's all. Just stand. I wonder, I've never been in a context like this. I can say on a Sunday morning with this many wonderful people, I know what I'd do, yeah, and we'd all say, yeah, but, but if I'm not here and I'm somewhere else and there's very few of us together, would I be able to do this? 
I don't know. That's why I like the story. I would elicit from this story the strength, and I would think Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego could do it, so I can do it. And I kind of come into identify in solidarity with these guys. But here's the deal. It, they just stood while everybody else bowed, and that was fine for a time. But then suddenly the Chaldeans took notice. The Chaldeans of chapter 2 were people who their hides were saved by these three guys and Daniel. But they've forgotten that, and they see that they gain, these guys gained credibility with Nebuchadnezzar in chapter 2. And so now they're looking for a way to knock these guys back down a peg or two. And so these Chaldeans watch them for a time, and they come up to king, and they're tattletales, like a tattletale at school. Got to go tell the teacher on the kids, right? They come up to the king, and they tattletale the king. These three guys aren't doing what you said. Didn't you say this? And they repeat the law. Yeah, that's what the law says. They're not doing it. What are you going to do about it? And he's, he's in a spot. And he calls these guys up. And so now, all of a sudden, it's not just about standing when everybody else is bowing. Now it's standing before the powers that be with great fear because the king says, I'll give you a chance to recant. I'll give you a chance next time you bow down and I'll not, not, you'll not have to worry about it. But if you don't, next time it's not going to be a warning. Next time it's going to be the fire. I'm going to fire you, literally. I'm going to throw you in the fire. And that would be the end. And what kind of God are you trusting in gives you great confidence that's going to rescue you from my fire? This is a great tactic of the world. The powers that be love to use fear to, to cause us to back down from our faith. Use fear and repercussion and intimidation. And that's the world's greatest thing. And you're in school and you're by yourself. The greatest thing is you got this fear. What, have other, what are other people going to do to me? What are other people going to think of me? And so they try the fear card. And Nebuchadnezzar brings it out and he puts it on the table and says, if you guys don't bow down, I'm going to throw you in the fire. You think you could stand for God in those moments? You think you could stick with your faith when that kind of fear and intimidation is at stake? We could do it on Sunday mornings. That's easy. We can sing together, but... So that's what Nebuchadnezzar, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego make me want. I want to be able to do that. I, I, I don't know if I would, but I have them to help. Oh, so you know what happens. He ends up throwing them into the fire after he turns it up real hot. And, uh, and then you start seeing this weird image. Not three in the fire. You've got four in there. And I know what you're going to say to him. I'm going to have all these people come up afterwards, all you Harding students going through theology classes with those weird teachers you got. You're going to come up to me and say, well, you don't know really that that was Jesus. It was Jesus. I got a revelation last night. It was Jesus in that fire. It was, he wasn't, his story doesn't start in a birth in Bethlehem or Christmas story. He, he doesn't start anywhere. He's always been. And his pre-existence, this is Jesus in the fire with these three guys. They get thrown in the fire. And here's the thing. It's a wonderful image. You, you, we sing this. And he walks with me. And Can you see that? Adam and Eve walking. And you sing this song. Oh, the closeness of being able to walk with Christ. That would be wonderful, you know. But here's the thing. You can only walk with him if you're willing to get in the fire with him. He doesn't save you from the fire. He saves you in it. And there's too many times I think that I have forfeited a walk like this because I wouldn't risk the fire. I don't want to get in the fire, so I'll back down a little bit. And there goes your chance to walk that closely and intimately with the Savior. You can only do it in the fire. Garth Brooks says it this way, the great theologian. You ready? I want you to complete the line with me if you know it. If you're Christians, you should know old country. Life is not tried, it's just merely survived. If you're, 
Yes, that was terrible, but that's true. If you're standing outside the fire, too many of us, when it gets hot, we don't risk it. I look at this and I say, I want to stand like these guys did when the pressure's on, but you know what? I also want to walk with Jesus like these guys did. And I've got to tell you, I've known some people who have a close walk with Christ like this. But I want to tell you this, it wasn't acquired by a miraculous gift of the Holy Spirit. The people I know with a depth of much intimacy with Christ like this got it through a fire. They got it through turmoil and life circumstances that drove them to their knees and they didn't know how they'd survive it if he didn't go with them. But too many of us won't do that. Too many of us choose not to and because of that we don't have a walk like this. And so we sing the song, Oh, for a closer walk with God. Do you really want one? King's bad at math, and he looks around, and he says, Guys, did I throw three people in there? And they say, Of course you did. He says, Why are there four? You throw in three in the fire, it's supposed to turn to zero. This is subtraction, and it, there's addition. How did this happen? And they don't know, but they bring these guys out, and no longer are they bound. So, you know, they were in the rope together. No ropes. No smell of smoke. I've had campfires in my house before, and I'll smell like smoke for three weeks after. Hair, clothes, you can't get rid of it. These guys had no smell of smoke, no singed hair, no burned anything. And Nebuchadnezzar is bumfuzzled. What in the world? Then he gives the greatest definition of faithfulness in all of Scripture. An unbelieving man gives the greatest definition of what faithfulness is in all of Scripture by looking at these boys. And this is where I pause for again and go, if an unbeliever looks at my life, will they go, wow, you're faithful. And I got a little glimpse of this when my biological dad came a few weeks ago. He comes in, and the only reason, he, I hadn't seen him in 36 years, and I had no idea he was coming. He comes in the office, and it's a weird, it's a weird moment. And so as he comes in, I'm just like, okay, I know who you are because I hear your voice. I've not seen you, but I, I, I know who you are. You explain yourself. I said, what makes you come now? Are you dying? <laughs> That's what I no, I've been watching you on Facebook. I mean, YouTube. I've been watching your sermons on YouTube. You've been and he says to me, I don't believe what you're preaching. I knew that already. And then he looks at me and says, but I think you do. I'm glad it comes across that way. And I hope that when I'm in an unbelieving world living my life, I hope not by sermons on YouTube, but I hope in the way I live my life that people look at me and say, I believe you believe what you believe. I be I, you know what I mean. Listen to this definition because this is the definition of faithfulness that I hope unbelievers can see of us. It's in verse 28. It was read a moment ago when he says to them, Nebuchadnezzar answered, and these people come out and he's amazed and he says, Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego who has sent his angel and delivered his servants. That's God right there. But now from servants on, he's describing Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego who trusted in him. You trusted in your God, and when I told you there's never been a God save you from my fire, you still trusted in your God, and he proved himself trustworthy. You trusted in him. How can people see you trust in your God? Sunday morning, it's easy. I surrender all. You can do that. But how does an unbeliever who's not at church but is in your life, how can they tell you trust in him? 
You turn to him instead of everything else. Here's how you complete the sentence. I can tell you trust in God because when bad things happen, blank helps you get through. My dad, my mom, Xanax, my bank account, or is it you trust in God to get you through? It should be written on your life by your sense of purpose and your sense of peace. When the whole world's going crazy and you watch CNN or Fox, I don't care which one, the world's going crazy. And they need to see some Christians who trust in God, not politics. They need to see Christians who trust in a creator who they know is on the throne when everybody else says, no, it's President him or President so-and-so, whoever. It is our God who's on the throne. How can the world see you believe that? How can they see it? You see, on our coins, we have this phrase, in God we trust. And one of these days, somebody's going to come along and write a bill to take that off. Don't go on Fox News and don't get excited and try to get them to stop that. This country has not trusted in God in a long time. Right? We trust. Listen to our rhetoric. We trust our big military. We trust our big economy. And we trust the kind of government we have. That's what we put our trust in. You can tell it by the way we talk. But when people look at you, what's written on you? Nebuchadnezzar says, I can tell by the way you just lived your life. I can tell you trusted in your God over every other support network you could have. Can they see that in us? Faithfulness is when unbelievers can look at us and tell, no matter what's going on in the world, we trust in God. Number two, they trusted in him and they set aside the king's command. The king says, you just disregarded the entire law that I wrote. And the king says, I noticed that you just totally, totally ignored what I said. And here's the deal, most of the time in America, you can live your Christian faith and still be very faithful and patriotic to your country. There's no real problem with this. You can do the same kind of life, and the government honors it, unbelievers honor it, and the church honors it. But there are occasions, right? There are occasions when if you honor what the government or the society says, you are having to go against what God says. And so you've got competing advice, suggestions, and guidelines for life. You've got competing instructions. The world says this, and God says this, and what, whether you're faithful or not depends on which side you're listening to. You see, you listen to sitcoms, and you listen and watch other things. There's a sexual ethics in our country that look like this. Basically, if you're attracted, you have every right to do whatever you want. On this side, we have God who says there's one outlet for your sexual expression, and it's marriage. And so we've got Christians who have to decide, am I going to go with this, or am I going to listen to this? Which one am I listening to? Which one's going to determine what I believe and what I do? It's as simple as that. We've got a lot of Christians, it's funny, who, who, who think they, they sing Jesus as Lord and I surrender all, and they come to worship every time. But when they go outside, their sexual ethics are totally free of, the, uh, of any kind of restraint from God's Word. How can that be? If the world says this and God says this, you're only faithful if you do what God says. The world says, the religious world even says baptism's this, and we know what Scripture says. we got to go with this. And if we are the only ones in the entire universe who go with this, because that's what Scripture says, so be it, let's go. It's who you listen to. It's who's giving you instructions that you're actually doing. 
Here's an unbeliever looking at these guys and so I can tell you trust in your God. I can tell because you listened to your God instead of me. Boy, there's something. And then number three, you served your God, yielded up your bodies rather than serve and worship any God except your own. They didn't just believe in God. They didn't just worship God. They served Him with their entire beings. I am a servant, a slave. That means He owns me. It means I do what he says even when I don't understand why he says it. That's what he's saying. He's willing to even lose life and limb if that's what it takes because being a servant isn't just about coming in here and worshiping for an hour and then leaving. I use this in early service because Maddie was here. I pick on Maddie all the time. People that will say to me will sing, I surrender all, but I'll give you an hour, preacher, and if you go beyond the hour limit of this worship service, I'm out of here. That doesn't sound like yielding your lives to him, does it? It's called yielding an hour. Yielding until I'm hungry. It's called yielding until... Don't ask me for any more than... You didn't have a right to... Yielding your entire lives. This is what faithfulness is. And so here's this unbelieving king looking at these three faithful guys and says, I, I can see you're faithful. You trust your God. You listen to him over everything else. And you're willing to even die for him. That is faithfulness. Can the world tell? I listen to this. I don't know this about me. I, I want this to be true of me. Anybody else? I want it to be true that when I walk out of here and the way I live, unbelieving world looks at that and says, we may not agree with what he does. We may not agree with what he believes and thinks and preaches, but we believe he's faithful to it. That's what we should be hungry for from this story. Okay, so that's all great and dandy. I, I hope I increased your hunger drive, right? That's what I want. That's what I'm, I want to stand with him when everybody else is bowing. I want to walk close with Christ, and I want to be faithful in the eyes of unbelieving people. Great. How do we do it? The answer to a narrative is always in the dialogue. The dialogue that we missed. I skipped it on purpose. It's back up in verse 16. When Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego are forced to give an explanation to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If this be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not, be it known to you, O king, we will not serve our, your gods or worship the golden image you've set up. Can I tell you in one sentence? I'm going to tell you it's got three parts, but it fits in one sentence. What belief you have to have to have a faith like this. Number one, you must believe God could rescue you. You have to believe he's able. In chapter two, Nebuchadnezzar is convinced our God is all-knowing. He just doesn't think he can do anything about anything. He needs to be proven that God is all-doing too. Our God is able. Our God is able to do anything, church. Do you believe that? If you don't believe that, shut up your praying. Praying makes no sense at all if you don't believe you're talking to the all-knowing, all-doing creator who can do anything about what you asked. You may not think he might, but you've got to be able to believe he might. James says you must pray believing, but he doesn't say believing what. 
Here's the answer to that. James says you must pray believing that God could answer your prayer. You have to believe that the God of Scripture is still who He always was. The one who had Him cross the Red Sea and dry ground and produce water out of a rock and later on raise the dead and He also gave sight to the blind and cast out evil. You must believe God could still do that today. And if you don't, leave! What are we here for? Your impotent God is no use to anybody. And our world's wondering, why should we follow a God like that? We must believe that God could. And the reason we believe in prayer is not because we believe in prayer. The reason we believe in prayer is we believe in God. That's not the hard one. Most Christians, I find, believe God could. The second element is really hard. We must accept that God may not. God, I know, is capable of doing anything we ask or imagine, but I also know that He has the right to withhold rescue if He wants to. The great story we just recognized in the emblems was a story that we often don't look at, and that's in the garden. Sweat drops almost like blood, right? Face down on the ground, it says. He was praying to God, please, please take this from me. The sinless, never made a mistake Son of God appeals to God with his entire heart, and God looks at him and says, no, no, no. Can God tell you no? A prayer with all every fiber of your being? When you're praying for that child, praying for the life of someone you love or the faith of someone you love, can God say no? Even his greatest apostle Paul, when he's saying, God, you know, if you get rid of this thorn in my flesh, I could do great things. And God says, no, no, no. We live in a world that calls no an unanswered prayer. Well, he just hasn't said yes yet. No. Sometimes God has answered. And he said no. We have a God who can tell his closest children no and expect them to still obey. Hebrews 11 has this... Uh, uh, Hall of Fame of Faith, right, we call it. It has all these people that did great things, and they did, built arcs and led people out of slavery. But the less preachable part is at the end of the chapter when it says, uh, you know, time is running out, I have time. But God also oversaw people being sawn in half, filleted alive, saw their fathers, their sons, their mothers taken from them and killed. That is faith too. The cloud of witnesses that you call upon for strength don't just bear witness to and testify to a God who rescues, they bear witness to a God who doesn't. That sometimes He lets these things happen and we don't know why, but we trust His purpose even when we don't know it. And listen, He can't be God if He has to explain Himself to me all the time. And if He's fully understandable, He won't be God. And I won't be servant. I can't be servant if I have to understand before I believe. That's not servant. That's not servant. That's not slave. The closer I get and the more I study about God, the, the more mysterious He becomes. At Valley He is the God who I believe in some sense and with some resources intervened in an amazing way with Maya just a few months ago. 
I think of the amazing things he experienced that came within this part of just being exiting the world just as he came into it. And we've had a front row seat to watch this, and we've seen this happen, and I, I feel a great sense of encouragement. But the same God on the throne who oversaw the rescue of this child didn't keep the door closed on that Sunday morning with Veda. And I struggle with that, do you? A two-year-old dies in a Sunday morning, drowns in a pool. Where was God then? I want to know where was he then. And I don't know. I can't answer that for anybody, parents or anybody else. I can't explain it for myself. He just chose not to do anything. And I'll never understand that. And I'll never come to any kind of conclusion about that. I just know this, I know that God could, and I know He could have, and He chose not to, and I don't know what kind of God that is, and I don't know if you struggle with this or not, it's okay for you to struggle, there's a lot of us believers who come believing, and we serve God our entire lives with a limp, not quite understanding why He did this, I don't know. That leads to the third one. We must believe God could, we must believe God may not, and it must not matter. It can't matter. Trusting when you can't understand and explain and you have your own doubts as you come along. I've had a Job life experience in my life. You know the story at the beginning of Job. They have this kind of conference call in heaven and they're talking about things and God brings up Job's name. says, Job's great. And Satan says, will you give me a chance at him? And he gives him a chance at him, and Job's faithful. But I want to say, if there's ever a meeting like that, God, don't bring me up. Don't bring up my name. And I've never had to believe through incredible, dire circumstances like some people do, like Abby Whitley does, who still believes and never wavered through all of that. And Justin, too, never wavered through all of that. But there's a great, big, shadowy cloud. Yes, they believe, but there's a sorrowful belief. And there is a place for sorrowful belief in the Christian faith. There's a place for this. It's a big bruise. It never goes away. But there was a time, I, I had an experience like Abraham where I thought I might, and all of a sudden there was a ram caught in a thicket. They tell us at a Sunday night at church, Abby has two tumors in her head. Don't go home, go to Labonner right now. Melissa's in the ambulance, and I get some stuff together, and I'm driving I-55 by myself. Call one person, leave a message, but the rest of the time, God and I are having a father-father conversation. It was very lively. I don't mind telling you, my prayers are lively. I get very vehement, and I, it's never disrespectful, but God's big enough to handle whatever my stuff is. He, he tells me that, and he's shown me that, and we had a father-to-father -father conversation. I kept thinking to him, am I going to come back planning a funeral? And if I am, what am I going to do? The story unravels slowly over the next week, and it turns out fine. But in that moment, and my mom comes down, and she says, you know, you've been blessed all your life, but this, this may, or what are you prepared to do? It's a good question. Preparing this lesson for Center Hill, something like it for Center Hill two or three summers ago, I was talking about this, and I looked at Abby and said, you know what would have happened? You know what would have happened if we'd lost you and buried you back there? 
I'd still be faithful. I'd still be preaching. But there'd be a great big sorrow forever lingering right there in my faith. It's just going to be there, and I would get to heaven with a great big bruise because I don't understand it. Now, here's what's amazing about this third point. God could, but God may not, and it must not matter, is this. What these three boys do is they neutralize God. God doesn't matter in the story. Do you get this? God doesn't matter in the story. They say, they say, our God can rescue. Our God can deliver, and he's gonna. But you know what? If he doesn't, we're still gonna be faithful to him. If he makes us perish in this fire, we will perish being faithful. They decide. We know what we're gonna do, even if we don't know what God will. And so they decide... It doesn't matter what he's going to do. It doesn't matter how he responds. We're still going to be faithful. Have you decided this yet? Have you decided this yet? Or are you saying, I'll believe if, 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 if? Or have you decided that no matter what God does, no matter what you experience, no matter what he allows in your life, and no matter what confusion and uncertainty and doubt exists in your head, you're standing right here and you're saying, God, I'm going to take my doubts straight to your face in heaven and you'll clear it up then. I'll trust you until then. Have you decided that? That's the kind of faith. That's the kind of faith that makes you stand when everybody's bowing. That's the kind of faith. that allows you to go in a fire and trust that he's going to walk with you. That's the kind of faith that makes unbelievers go, you really do believe what you say you believe. The skeptic will say, well, that's nice rose-colored glasses stuff there. The skeptic will say, well, that just means whatever you prayed for, no matter what the answer is, you're going to say God's with you. This is a simple-minded devotion that just gets God out of every mess. Can I tell you how I'd answer the skeptic? It would be this way. There's a reason why. It doesn't matter whether God rescues us in our temporal emergencies of this life. He may not rescue you from the dilemma you've got. You've got a chronic illness the rest of your life. You may not rescue you from any number of things. But listen to me. He's rescued you in the most ultimate, eternal, and earth-shattering and awful experience that you deserve but you'll never have to face. He's already rescued you from that. You see, your sin separates you from God, and because of that, you deserved what the cross showed. That cross was a symbol of what you deserve for your sin, but you weren't on it. You weren't on it because Jesus took your place. He, like Superman, swoops down in your time of danger and your time of deserved damnation, right? He sweeps down and he takes your spot and he pushes you out of the way and he takes the brunt of the wrath of God. He drinks that cup in full fury and you get off scot-free looking like Jesus. There's your rescue. And you see what? Here's the deal. If he never rescues you from anything else, you deserve to worship him the rest of your life. He did rescue you. And because he did, he wouldn't have to rescue another time. So if you pray, and God does something amazing like he did with Myatt, we're going to all rejoice, and we're going to rejoice with great joy in our hearts, and we're going we're to praise God. And those moments when we pray, or we don't even know what's happening, and bad things happen, we don't understand that you're being righteous and holy, and yet the bad stuff happens, we're going to mourn. We're going to mourn and still believe. That's what we're going to do. It's the faith of these boys. 
This story makes me want to be better. This story makes me want to be better. I hope it makes you want to be better in its easy way. Here, God could. He might not. And it doesn't matter because He already has. If for whatever reason you've never responded to Him, you've never received that rescue, I want you to know it's available. It is an automatic thing. If you are a person separated from God because of your sin, there's no reason in the world the Savior has come. That's why we call Him Savior. He saved us. He's offered it to you, and you've just turned it away, or maybe you didn't even know about it, but this morning you know about it. He has rescued you. And if you've never responded and let Him take your place, why in the world would you want to leave with rescue available but not accepting it? You need a rescue? It's available right now as we stand and as we sing.